Father, as we have come and we have proclaimed who you are this afternoon, we don't, we don't, uh, we don't escape what a privilege it is to see you for who you are. Thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in your word, through your son, by the power of your spirit. Father, it's our desire to know you more this afternoon, to see something of who you are in the gospel this afternoon that would, would help us love you more, help us to see who we are, help us to love the people around us more. And we know that you can do that by the power of your word. As we gather around your word now, we know that these aren't just letters and words and sentences in a book. This is power. Father, we believe that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would illuminate it to us. Lead us to truth. Change us, we pray. For the glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, folks, we all love... Uh, a good versus evil story, don't we? We like the clear divides that you see in those stories. Villains against victims and Disney, Netflix, Prime, all of uh, those and many more jump on board with that great story as well. They tap into it and they make their billions on the good versus evil story. And our media tap into it as well. You look at how the conflict in Ukraine is being portrayed and many journalists are tapping into that same narrative of good versus evil, villain against victim. And these are are categories that resonate with us. They connect with us. What's interesting is when we see these stories and hear these stories of good versus evil, we usually tend to identify with the victim rather than the villain. We like to place ourselves in the story as we do, and we always go along with the victim. And we like to think that we're on the good side. And as we see ourselves in good characters within stories, we find ourselves justifying some of the wrong things that they do. We do it all the time. So our kids and judges, if you want, they just started watching Harry Potter, just the first one. Um, And they're absolutely obsessed with it already. We look at Harry Potter. Harry Potter is the, the victim. He's the good guy. He's the one we get behind. But if you look at who he is, he's a truant. Like He spends more time out of school than in school. He's a thief. So he goes around stealing from Voldemort, who's an old man, steals seven bits of his soul. He's a murderer, murders Voldemort seven times. But we we never really see it that way, do we? You can say the same thing of a number of stories where there is a good character, an evil character, and we like to justify their wrongdoings because they are overridingly good. And if we're not careful, we could read the Exodus story the same way. So far, we've seen God's people who have grown from one family. Remember the promises given to Abraham, an old man. I'm going to create a, through you a nation who will, who will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And 500 years later, we find that Abraham's family have grown into a nation of probably over a few million people. But they're enslaved in Egypt. And so we've read that God comes to his people and he gives them promises to free them to liberate them, to bring them into his rest. And on the surface, as we've been working through the story, it looks like that classic good versus evil story. It looks like it falls into our neat categories. You have God's people, Israel, who are the good guys, and you have Pharaoh and Egypt over here who are evil. You have the oppressed and you have the oppressor. Good versus evil. Excuse you. Except that isn't the case at all. 
the last few chapters, particularly last week, we've seen God pour out his judgment on evil, firstly through nine plagues. And with each of these plagues, God is showing his power over the idols of Egypt and he's bringing about his judgment against their sinful idolatry. He's showing his power. We saw last week, didn't we, how he undermines the foundations of these Egyptian deities and the idols and the hearts of the Egyptians. And he is showing his judgment against their sinful idolatry. Now look down with me at chapter 12, verse 12. This is God speaking. And he says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. He's talking about the 10th plague. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. All of them. So Israelites live in Egypt and Egyptians live in Egypt. And this judgment that is coming is going to go across all of Egypt. And remember what we've been saying each week. What God does physically in the Exodus story is a picture of what he does spiritually with all of humanity. So the tenth plague here is that God is going to come in the night and he is going to strike down. He's going to take the life of all of the firstborn in all of Egypt. What he does physically is a picture of what he does spiritually. God's right judgment on humanity for our rebellion is death. Not just physical death. Something far worse than that. Spiritual death. Spiritual death which is an eternity. Separated from light and life. Which we find only in the presence of God. Spiritual death which is an inability to take hold of the eternal joy. The eternal peace. The eternal rest that every single one of us longs for. And that is the right and fair sentence that is read over us. Because of our offences against God. See, the first thing that we learn in these chapters is we all deserve judgment. Yet, last week in the plagues, we began to see a pattern. Remember last week as we walked through the plague, something shifts after the third plague. So the third plague is the plague of gnats. And after that point, God differentiates his people. After the third plague, they don't touch God's people, Israel. And it will be the same with this last plague, this plague of the death of the firstborn. God makes a distinction between those in Egypt who aren't from Israel and those who are. God is making a distinction. He's going to treat them differently. But here, it isn't because they're good. It isn't because God looks at them and he thinks, oh, well, they're the villain and they're the victim. They're good and they're evil. That isn't why he differentiates at all. There is no one good. This is what Jesus says up on the screen in John 14, verse 6. Jesus says, only God alone is good. All of humanity is born into this world inherently evil. We are all on the side of the villain. The distinction that God makes isn't between good and evil. The distinction he makes between Israel and Egypt, it's not an issue of racial or social superiority. That could not save them and it will not save us. And we might read headlines and maybe see things pop up on our social media that maybe people are stepping out of line morally. And we might point a moral finger at them and and think, shame on you. Yet we aren't saved if we are Christians because we're good, because we've got some kind of moral superiority. We all deserve judgment. 
And this last plague shows us how terrifying the judgment that God pours out on sinners is. Israel deserved judgment along with Egypt. Yet, God spares them. Chapter 12, verse 13, straight after what we've just read, says this. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt. God says this plague is coming. This last plague, the tenth plague, I'm going to come in the dead of night. I'm going to strike down all of the firstborn in Egypt. But you will be covered with blood. And when I see the sign of blood over your house, I will pass over. God promises to spare all of his people. To pass over them when judgment comes. And he promises the same for his people today. Why? Not because we are good. Not because we find ourselves on the right side of the story. God promises to pass over us in judgment because of his sovereign grace. God's salvation from the judgment of death that is due to all. If he saves us, that is a gift. That was a gift to Israel and it is a gift to us. That's what grace is. It's a gift that we don't deserve. It is sovereign grace. It is a gift from God and it's sovereign because God, as the ruler of all things, he decides and he determines who will receive that gift of grace. That's why we call it sovereign grace. Now, if you've been following through the story so far, you'll have seen this phrase popping up over and over. We've seen it 18 times. We're going to see it one last time next week. This phrase of Pharaoh's heart being hardened. You recognize that? We've read it 18 times already. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And when we read that, when we read of Pharaoh's heart being hardened or anyone's heart being hardened, what is being described as someone who is resistant to God, someone who is arrogant towards God, someone who hears the commands of God and and says, no thanks. So you think of Moses and Aaron going to, to Pharaoh nine times already and saying, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh, because he is hard of heart, says, no. No thanks. That's what it means to have a hard heart against God. It is to stand opposed to God. And we've heard how Pharaoh's hard heart is hard against God. But what's interesting, and maybe what has popped up some questions with you so far, is how many out of those 18 times we're told that it's God who hardens Pharaoh's heart. So we read that Pharaoh hardens his heart against God, but quite a few times we've read God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Which raises the question, why? If Israel are sinners, deserving judgment, and Pharaoh is a sinner, deserving judgment, why does God choose to save Israel and not Pharaoh? Well, a few thousand years later, after the Exodus, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he answers this very question. In Romans chapter 9, verses 16 to 23, I'll pop up on the screen, we read this. Paul is talking about salvation and how it comes to us. And he says, it depends not on human will. That is, we can't muster it up with our own intellect. Depends not on human will or exertion. So that's our physical strength. Our salvation depends on God who has mercy. 
And then he quotes directly from the Exodus story. This is talking about the fifth plague. It says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? So throughout the the letter to the Romans, Paul is building a picture. He's building a picture of, of how we sit naturally coming into the world. And he says, we come into this world sitting under the judgments of God. We come into this world as sinners. We all naturally and willingly oppose God and we harden our hearts against him. And he's saying here in chapter nine, those who are saved are not saved because of our intellect, our human will. We're not saved because of our strength, our exertion. We are saved only because God decides to show us mercy. That's what he says. He has mercy on who he wills. Paul is saying God is sovereign over our salvation. But what about those who aren't saved? What about those who he calls vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Well, God too is determined that their hearts will be hardened. He's sovereign over them too. And he determines that, Paul says, in order to show how spectacular his mercy is to those who've received it. The natural question that comes up as we read Exodus in these first few chapters and we see that God hardens Pharaoh's heart and we see that Pharaoh hardens his heart. The natural question that comes up is, has Pharaoh chosen to oppose God or has God chosen that Pharaoh will oppose God? The answer to that question is, Pharaoh freely chooses to do what God has freely chosen for him to do. Pharaoh freely chooses to do what God has freely chosen for him to do. And now I know that leaves us with loose ends and questions. And Paul doesn't tidy that up for us. Because he isn't trying to. He leans back on the character of God and we can too. If you look back at chapter 12, verse 12. God talks about his judgment that is coming. And at the end of the verse, he says this. I am the Lord. See, when we come to difficult passages like this and we see the judgment of God and his mercy on some, we need to remember he is the Lord. And haven't we come across that statement already as Andy was preaching, I am is God's name. And whenever we hear him give that self-declaration of himself, what we need to see is the fullness of his character. When God says, I am, he is saying, he is all that he is. He is all good. He is all love. He is all truth. He is all holy. He is all just. God is who he is. And he sovereignly chooses to do what he does. And we can trust him in that. See, folks, what is really shocking is not that God sovereignly chooses some for mercy and not others. But that God sovereignly chooses anyone at all. Israel should have suffered all of God's judgment in all 10 of the plagues, and they don't. We should suffer God's judgment for our sin, 
And if we are saved, we don't. That's the scandal here. And God in his grace has provided a means for that mercy coming to us. If you flick back, look at the start of chapter 12. God gives his people specific instructions for how they are going to escape judgment that is coming on the firstborn. In verse 5, he says that each family are going to take a clean, spotless lamb. And they're going to keep this lamb in their home for four days. They would have fed it. They would have cared for it. I imagine the picture, like imagine in our home and some of your homes, bringing a little cute lamb home and you imagine the kids playing with it and and rolling around with it and enjoying this new pet that's come into their home. They would have grown a bond with it. They would have identified it. It would have been like a pet that comes into the family and is part of the family. And on the day of Passover, as the sun set, the father of the household would take the lamb in his arms and pull back his head and slit his throat. And you can imagine the kids like, Dad, what are you doing? Blood everywhere. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. See, the lamb that was sacrificed was a representative for the household and it was a substitute for the household. Its blood was shed to cover the sin of the household and to turn away God's judgment. The lamb's blood was shed for them. In verse 7 of chapter 12, God instructs them further that to take some of the blood from the lamb and that to paint it on the doorpost. God says, when the plague comes, when he comes that night in the cover of darkness, when he comes in judgment to take the firstborn, he will pass over their homes. As he sees the blood on the doorpost, he will pass over their homes. And don't be confused here. The blood isn't there because God didn't know who was inside. It's not like God's kind of coming. He's like, well, I don't know who's in that one. So I need to, they've got blood there. Okay. No, the blood is there because God knows who's inside. He knows that there are sinners inside deserving of judgment. But when he sees the blood, he knows that someone else has died and he can pass on. Judgment has already fallen on that household so he can pass on. So on the night of Passover, no one escaped judgment. On the morning after, in every home in Egypt, whether it was the home of an Israelite or an Egyptian, Blood had been spilled. The only question was, was it the blood of a lamb or the blood of their son? This might sound gruesome and gritty and a little bit. Salvation through blood is all the way through the Bible. It goes right back to the start, the first few pages of the Bible in Genesis, when our first mother and father, Adam and Eve, sinned. God covered them with animal skins. An animal died to cover their sin. God had warned them. Don't don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you sin, there will be death. And there was. Adam and Eve escaped death on the spot because another's blood was shed for them. And the pattern continues through the Bible. You come to Abraham and Isaac. You know the story of Abraham carrying Isaac up the mountain ready to sacrifice his own son. But God provides another way. A ram dies. The blood of a ram is shed on the altar in the place of Isaac. And the pattern continues here in the Passover. God provides a lamb for every family in Israel. 
And he says, your life will be saved by the death of another. That's what happened to Adam. That's what happened to Isaac. And that is what happens to you. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. God says to his people, your life will be spared because another's will be laid down for you. But what we see in the Passover, folks, is just a temporary measure. It is temporary waiting for the full and final sacrifice. Like it's obvious, isn't it? When we look at a lamb, like that, that can't replace us. That can't be a proper substitute for a human. It's an animal. It's a lamb. It's not like us. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like us. It doesn't experience the brokenness of the world and sin like us. A lamb could never be a right substitute for humanity, which is why we need Jesus. Jesus comes to the earth fully God and fully human. That's why John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus coming towards him, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because Jesus is God's Lamb. And all of the sacrifices in the Old Testament point towards him. The cross as Jesus dies. As nails pierce his hands and his feet. As blood drips from his head as a crown of thorns is pressed into his brow. As his back is scared, then blood flows from his body. He dies as our representative, human for human, and as our substitute, sinless for sinner. Jesus' perfect blood was shed for his people, so that when the final judgment of God comes, we will be passed over. We are covered by the blood of Jesus, and we will be protected. Not because of our goodness, not because we find ourselves on the right team, or because of his sovereign grace. We need to know, folks, we all deserve judgment. God is a gracious God, and thirdly, we need to see that God gives his grace to us and we receive it through faith. The Lamb of God lays his life down for his people. It's his life and his death that saves us. But there is still something that we should do. God says to his people in Egypt, he says, paint the blood over your doorposts. See, there has to be a personal application of our belief. Imagine the night of the Passover. Imagine if you were the firstborn son. You've heard of this plague that's coming. You've heard that God is going to strike down every firstborn son in Egypt. Unless the blood is found to be over the doorpost of your house. Imagine you're that son. Imagine having that conversation with your father. Daddy, sure this is going to work. That's okay, son. God has given his word. The blood of the lamb will save us. Yeah, but dad, what if he doesn't see it? What happens if there's not enough on the doorpost? It's okay, son. God has given his word. The blood of the lamb will save us. Yeah, but dad, it's only a lamb. Like that's not, that can't be a son. Son, it's okay. God has given his word. The blood of the lamb will save us. Yeah, but dad, dad, you don't know how sinful I am. Like surely it's not going to be strong enough to cover my sins. Son, it's okay. God has given his word. The blood of the lamb will save us. You can imagine them staying up all night. I would. Not wanting to close my eyes. 
I can imagine the firstborn sons holding tightly to their mom and their dad. As dawn breaks here and the cries across Egypt, as mothers and fathers wake up and finding their child is gone. As these cries echo across the land, you can imagine the firstborn sons in Israel holding tightly and tightly to their parents, wondering whether they would be next. But yet they can hear from their fathers, it's okay, son. God has given his word. The blood of the lamb will save us. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. But folks, we need to have faith that it is enough to save us. We need to have faith that the finished work of the cross is finished. I can picture Moses and Aaron on the night of the Passover going house to house doing their due diligence checks. Have you done it? Have you put the blood on your doorpost? Oh, we're just, we've just got to pack a few things. We know we're going. No, do it now. Don't delay. Go into another house. Have you done it? Have you put the blood on your doorpost? He's not really going to come. He's, he's let us off these last few plagues. No, God is coming in judgment. Do it now. Don't delay. Folks, if you're on the fence about Jesus, I plead with you like Moses and Aaron would have, don't delay. Put your faith in Jesus. Believe that you need saving from your sin and believe that he has provided a means of salvation through his death on a cross. And if you already have, if you've put your faith in Jesus already, I encourage you this afternoon to fuel your faith by remembering the cross. That's the fourth thing that we need to learn from this passage. We can fuel our faith through remembrance. See, the morning after the Passover, God's people would have celebrated their salvation. They would have woken up and and seen their sons are alive. There would have been relief. There would have been joy. There would have been a deepening of love for God and a deepening of their dependence and faith on him. And God didn't want them to forget. And so you see, right at the start of chapter 12, they reorient their calendars. They rewrite their calendars to, to start their year with a Passover. And every year they would repeat the Passover celebration. They would do a year after year to remind them, to bring their minds and their hearts back to that night of salvation. And as they celebrate this week-long feast, their faith would have been stirred. Their faith would have been fueled. There are a number of important points through uh, this week of celebrations. Firstly, you had the Passover meal. God gives them instructions in these chapters here. He tells them to take a lamb again, to kill it, and to roast this lamb with bitter herbs. And those bitter herbs were a a remembrance of the bitterness, the bitter experience that they had when they were slaves in Egypt. And they would eat the lamb and remember God's provision of a perfect sacrifice to cover their sin and to turn away God's judgment. There was the Passover meal, and then in chapter 13 we see that they are to remember all that God has done through just eating bread that was made without yeast for that week. They called it the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they would eat bread without yeast to remind them that on the night of the Passover, they were getting ready to leave Egypt in such a hurry that they didn't have time for their bread to prove. And so they made it without yeast. And this feast was a yearly reminder again of their freedom from slavery. How their old life had been left behind in a hurry. How they let go of Egypt and ran towards God. 
Now, if you know the Bible, you know that yeast is used as a metaphor again, a metaphor for sin. Think about yeast and the way that it spreads through a bread and a dough. It affects every part of the dough. The Bible says in the same way sin does that to us, it infects every part of us. And so in this part of the feast, God is saying every year, I want you to remember, that isn't you anymore. That life in Egypt, it is gone. I have exodus you out of that. So where there is sin in your life now, leave it. Cut it out. Start afresh. Jews who celebrate this feast today, the, the mothers in the household, as they prepare for this feast, they will physically brush out the whole house, making sure there is no dot of yeast in the household. God is reminding them your sinful life. Walk away from it. Leave it behind. If it is there, if there are traces, clean it out. And then lastly, again in chapter 30, we read of another celebration, the consecration of the firstborn, a dedication of the firstborn. They're told to dedicate their firstborn sons. Each year a sacrifice was to be made to God as an offering for the life of their firstborn. Now, if you remember back in chapter 4, verse 22, God calls Israel his firstborn son. That's their name. And in this celebration, the sons of God's people, they were to be redeemed by a replacement, a sacrifice, to remind God's people, the people that he calls his firstborn son, that they are no longer under judgment. They are no longer to be living as sinners. They are no longer to identify themselves as slaves. They are to identify themselves as freed sons and daughters. Those who have been redeemed by God through the shedding of blood. We're going to see next week, folks. Within hours of leaving Egypt, life becomes hard. Life outside of Egypt wasn't easy. God's people were tested. They were tried and they were tempted because, as we've already sung, they were prone to forget and prone to wonder all that God had done. And so the Passover was repeated every year in every generation. And as they looked back and remembered, it served to fuel their faith. Served as a perpetual reminder that God's word is true, that He is God, He is a God who saves, that He has freed us from our slavery to sin, that His judgment has passed over us, that He has redeemed us from a life of slavery to sin, that we are now His sons and daughters. And as they remembered and looked back, their faith would have been fueled by their remembrance. And so is ours. Except when we look back, we have a greater work to look back to than the Passover. The fuel of our faith, brothers and sisters, is found in the final and full sacrifice of God's Son, Jesus. As we head out of here, just like Israel, leaving Egypt, our faith is tested. We'll be tempted. And we'll be tried. Sin will come knocking at the door. And when it comes, we will find ourselves questioning, is God really powerful enough to defeat this? Look back at the cross and remember, he is. 
when we experience the brokenness of the world around us and we question whether God is really in control, look back at the cross and remember he is. When you find yourselves in moments this week, convincing yourself that no one loves you, look back at the cross and remember he does. When we question whether God will meet us in our loneliness, in our distress, in our pain, in our suffering, in our anxiety, in our addictions, in our most embarrassing of sins. Look back at the cross and remember, he will. You find yourself doubting. Has he really removed my guilt? Has he really covered my shame? Back at the cross and remember he has. Here's what we learn from the Passover. God is who he is. He will destroy evil and he will pour out his judgment with justice. The message of the gospel isn't that following Jesus is going to make life easy. It isn't like he brings us into Disneyland. The message of the gospel is that Jesus has come to cover our sin and to turn the judgment of God away from us through the shedding of his blood on the cross. Put your faith in him. And this week, when your faith feels fragile, fuel it with remembrance of all that he has done on the cross for you and live in light of what you remember. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you When you promise, you fulfill those promises. We thank you that your word is true. We thank you for the promise of salvation to your people in Egypt. Father, we thank you for the faith which you gave them through that night and the deliverance which you bought for them through the sacrifice of thousands of lambs but fulfilled finally in the sacrifice of your son. Jesus, where we are prone to think that We can save ourselves through intellect, through strength. Father, convince us of the lie that we are living. Help us to see that the only means of salvation is through your sovereign grace. For those of us who received it, help us to to turn that reality back to you in worship. Father, we love you for your salvation towards us. We know what we deserve. Father, as we come across difficult passages, as we have done, as we see the reality that there are many in this world who sit under your judgment, where we don't have the answers, at the very least, can you help us to worship you more as we see the scandal that we have received mercy? Oh, Father, we should be under judgment just like them. We thank you that we're not. Father, we thank you for the cross. Jesus, we thank you for your perfect life. We thank you that you have made a way for us to receive mercy from God. 
Thank you that you bore our sins in your body on the cross. And through the shedding of your blood, you purchased for us redemption, forgiveness for our sins, salvation from death. Jesus, we thank you. And Holy Spirit, as we leave this place this afternoon, you know what we're going to face. You know the struggles with sin that we will contend with. You know the brokenness of the world that we will experience. And so we need your help. Our faith will feel fragile. So Holy Spirit, turn our minds back. Help us to remember the cross and help us to fuel our faith as we remember the faithfulness of our God. Jesus, we thank you that this is all about you. It's all about your glory. And as we gather around this meal now, even in this moment, help us to remember. Help us to give thanks. Help us to worship. Help us to dwell on what it is and what it took for us to receive mercy, not judgment. And help us to hold fast to the promise that one day as we are welcomed home, there will be no judgment for us that leads to death. We will be welcomed into eternal life. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.